Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact or donate. Don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to get notified when new episodes come out. And if you're enjoying the show, let your friends and network know about it. Previous guests on the show have included Brian Sanders, Alan Hirsch, and Michael Frost. You could go back and listen to those episodes and more. But today's guest is Bree Mills. Bree is an ordained Anglican minister, a director of Microchurches Australia, and a doctoral student in the area of missional leadership, focusing on innovative leadership in the Australian context. Bree and I have a great conversation around microchurches, meeting the needs of the community, creating psychological safety, team-based leadership, and a lot more. Bree has a lot of wisdom to share. I know you're going to enjoy this one. So here's Bree. Bree, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you on. Thanks, mate. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's really good. I'd love to hear your your journey into into the small, into the micro. How did you get into uh, missional communities and then into micro churches? What did that look like for you? Yeah, so the journey actually begins a lot longer, like, than most people realize is that for me this started when I was working in youth ministry Hmm. so I was working in a a small church in a particular area of Melbourne in an Anglican church Mm -hmm. and quite a quite an old-fashioned Anglican church and I I began some work down at the local high school and um, we're reaching kids and starting to engage there but it became really evident that those kids were not going to come back Mm. into the church as we knew it in that space and so yeah so we started playing around with some Things there, they built a, a shed, like a literally like a tin shed in the back of the church that became the youth space. <laughs> um, and that, that's kind of where we started playing around with smaller other forms of church. Mm. Um, you know, because fast forward a couple of years, I went into a bigger church whose youth ministry had kind of waned down to about 20. It was a church of about 500, 600 people. And yeah, they asked me to take what I'd done at this little church and give it a go on a larger context. Mm. And so, yeah. so we did that. And, you know, over about five years, um, God just did some cool stuff. We saw about 80 kids in discipling mm. relationships kind of by the end of that stage. And then, yeah, and then God literally, literally kind of called me to do the same things with adults because I was at one of those career-confessed mm. youth pastors. I was never going <laughs> to grow out of youth ministry. I was never going to move on to real ministry. I was, yeah. I was sold. That is where I was until God said, no, it's not. Yeah, that's always tough when God says, no, I want you here. I want you in this other area and you you are reticent to go. But, you know, it's probably the best place for you is where God wants you and uh, is leading you. Always. Yeah, <laughs> completely. And I, I can see for me how that was a real, um, that was God's call for me to move out of where I'm comfortable. So yeah. I've, I've become really comfortable in youth ministry. I was mm. good at it. I knew how to do it. I yeah. felt, you know, and to be honest, it, it became you know, me relying on my own strength mm. rather than relying on actually God's leadership and by God actually calling me to kind of move outside the church with our adults and our congregations and start to explore smaller communities. Yeah. Um, that definitely drove me outside my comfort zone mm. and back in a, a really dependent space on him. Mm. And it seems like journeys in, in all of our lives, once we get out into that space of being uncomfortable, into a space of liminality where you have can't really know exactly what's going on. Um, yeah, you're driven back into a place of being dependent on God. Of like this is 
really where I need to find my worth and my value. Um, And so what did that look like? And how did that shift and change uh, your relationship with God during that time uh, of being uncomfortable? Yeah, I I think it was the best thing, uh, the best thing he could have done for me, I think, to be be honest, there are some days I think, man, it was hard, but it was so Mm. beautiful, because um, I often say to people that, you know, they, they want you to come and talk about micro churches. And I'm like, I didn't set out to start a network of micro churches. Yeah. I just set out to follow Jesus into the neighborhood and that's what Jesus did. And I just <laughs> obediently kind of ran behind. But I think it taught me something really important in terms of um, just an attitude and a posture of, of what does it look like mm. to always be asking that question, God, what are you doing here? So what are you doing in the community around yeah. me? What are you doing in the, in the people I'm discipling? Um, what are you doing kind of globally in our world? And what are you asking me to do in this space? There's something really freeing about that because it means you're only focusing on the things in front of you. Yeah. Um, you're not focusing on God. How do you want me to build a 500 person church and, you right. know, yeah. grow, grow a monster ministry. It's literally just today, God, what's in front of me. Mm. What do you want me to do with that? And, and what does faithfulness look like in that space? Mm. And what does it look like to be faithful to you in this space? And I think that's a posture that I really kept since that time that I probably didn't walk in as much as I, I might have liked to say I did before then. <laughs> Certainly I've learned how to do that at a, at a much deeper level and mm. to be content with, with whatever it is that God calls you into in those spaces. So, um, And so, I mean, we have a lot of uh, churches and a lot of leaders at the moment that are, or they have been at least pre-COVID, were at a place where vision was driving them, that they were doing a lot of things out of their own strength. Um, Mm. because they can, like, uh, I know that I could probably build something, um, out of my own strength and I could grow it to a certain level. Um, and so what is that, that, that posture change of drive and vision and going after growth and the posture change towards faithfulness in the little things and what's in front of you, the places that are saying, hey, this is the thing that I need to be faithful to you today. How does mm. that change uh, the church around us of and our engagement with the community around us? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind straight away is just how attentive I am to the community around me now. I think my I would have before moving in this space, there would have been eighty percent of my attention that went to the needs of the people within my church and what they're asking for and what they yeah. want and and how do we build this ship, you know, bigger. Whereas I would say now probably at least maybe not eighty percent, but at least kind of sixty, seventy percent of a lot of my time and my focus is actually on the needs of the community around me and going. Well, what are they? Where, where is where mm. is God at work? Because that work of kind of discerning what what is God calling us to in this space is mm. is actually quite a, a complex work. It requires a lot of attention and yeah. focus and thoughtfulness and prayer and conversations yeah. um, with with local stakeholders and things like that. Um, so I think it's really shifted just how much of my focus mm. is beyond our church buildings yeah. um, compared to before that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you're you're engaging the community and you're engaging in these different missional spaces, uh, the different microchurch, microchurch network, um, coming from an Anglican background, um, what, how how has like high church and liturgy informed some of what is being done in the microchurch setting, um, and how does that play with one another? Yeah, it's interesting because I probably come from the lowest Anglican church that exists in Australia. <laughs> so uh, liturgy is not something I learnt, to be honest, mm. within the Anglican church in the early days. But it is something that I've seen and found a new value for in some of the micro churches. <laughs> um, some of the ways that, I mean, we're probably, most people would look at us and probably wouldn't be able to guess that we're Anglican. Um, but some of the, the practices and the liturgy they do, the repetition is a great way for people to, um, yeah, just really be formed mm-hmm. and, and grafted. It's like those um, missional practices, spiritual practices. As we get in, people engaged in doing the same things over and over and over again, it actually helps to sharpen and form who they are. 
Um, and we don't, we don't use a lot of liturgy in, in a lot of our spaces, um, but we, we do use some, but it's really intentional and it's really contextually where that's appropriate. Mm. Yeah. Um, so each each of our micro churches looks incredibly different. Some will mm. use none. Some will use a lot more. Um, but yeah, it's it's really just about realizing that there is a wealth of um, a wealth of wisdom and history and yeah. practices that we can draw from. And we we draw pretty broadly. So I'm a big Lectio Divina fan. Mm-hmm. Um, so we brought we we steal practices from <laughs> lots of different groups and denominations. Um, yeah. And, and it's really about what is actually going to help us to make disciples in the space that we're in mm. um, and to be a blessing to that community. So it, what does it look like in, in different communities and different small spaces? Are there different uh, different models and different microchurches and different things that are being done uh, to meet the needs of that community? Or is there something that is more more standards so are you following some principles and guidelines are you following a certain model what does that look like for you uh yeah so in australia we've kind of made a bit of a um a bit of our own model i guess um mm-hmm. we've got similarities to um brian sanders and the underground guys we've stolen a few tools from uh, the old school 3dm um mm-hmm. kind of movement um and there's probably a few others we've borrowed from uh, along the path but we're pretty simple in terms of what we try and do. We try and keep it as simple as possible um, because that's how you multiply it. Yeah. So if, if this is too big or too heavy, then everyday lay people who have full-time jobs doing other things can't pick it up and run with it. Um, and so some of the simple principles we have, are, are, you know, holding on to, we have four principles that we talk about when it comes to a micro church, that they've got to be spaces of worship, spaces of community, spaces of mission and spaces of partnership. So that's where we probably differ with some of the others who hold to an yeah. ecclesial minimum that we would hold that actually as as churches, we're actually called to be in partnership, whether that's within a network of microchurches. And we've got some microchurches who are mm. in partnership with existing kind of traditional churches. But mm. just I think the scripture calls Christians to unity. Yeah. Um, and those partnerships look different. Sometimes they're actually really quite hands-on and resource sharing. Mm. Sometimes they're just kind of heart level partnerships where yeah. where congregations are joined and connected but yeah we we like to encourage micro churches that they don't exist in isolation and that's mm. not healthy to exist in isolation yeah that's very true that uh need a network and you know i'll just give you an example of you know i was in the middle east for uh for many years with my wife and we were working with muslim background people yeah. when they started mm-hmm. to follow jesus we you know they started to to form small, simple churches uh, in their homes. They couldn't go to an existing Christian church; it just didn't uh, wouldn't work whatsoever. Mm. Um, and so, as we're we're sitting in there, one of the things that really helped uh, those small churches, the micro churches that were being formed uh, in those communities, was that they they needed to to hear and know that they're connected. Um, with others that there were it wasn't just them that was doing this there were more people and so you know we were working primarily with Syrian refugees and so we there was a network that was not just in the country we were but back into Syria and you know things were were happening and as uh, the stories were being shared across Mm. uh, the network as it formed people's hearts grew and they they realized that there was there was something bigger there was a bigger purpose to it than just this little isolated incident um and yeah that they they had it was really important for them yeah and i think you see that in the new testament right you see paul kind of sharing stories with the different churches about what's going on in other churches yeah. and it does it warms their heart it calls them to mm-hmm. prayer i think it's um, if you've ever been a part of a micro church that's, you know, been through a tough time or is just, you know, really struggling, then connecting with other micro churches who are flourishing or who are having similar struggles and can say, hey, this is what we've been doing. Maybe this is, you know, something you can try. I mean, that was that was what really gave our network life, I think, was mm. the the connections that we maintained between the different micro churches, specifically at a leadership level. Yeah. That was just a really healthy space that energized our communities to really flourish. 
Yeah. So how do you help your your bivocational or co-vocational leaders as they're trying to to shepherd these spaces and these the the people that are in these micro churches? Um, what does that look like for you and your network as you're you're helping them um, live out the daily walk with Jesus and then shepherding others to be able to do the same? Mm. Yeah, so we we always like to see ourselves as like a resource hub. Like this, this is the you know, this is the bit that that almost like the scaffolding that comes under you and around you and supports mm-hmm. you in what you're doing. Um, so we did a lot of stuff with our leaders, particularly like one-on-one coaching once mm-hmm. a month. We had a, a term gathering once a term that was for all of our leaders to gather together and and to support and encourage one, get some training, get some learning. Sometimes that's from me, sometimes that's actually from the different leaders who have learned something along the way mm. in their in their journey as a microchurch. Um, most of our leaders, so very few of our microchurch, actually almost none other than our pastor who runs it, uh, are paid. So they're all doing full-time yeah. work or full-time motherhood or, or something like that. So they're all in the same boat in that way, which I think helps them. But I think one of the, the things about the bivocational means that you you must have a good team around them. Yeah. Like it's this is not solo pastor territory. Yeah. Like if, if you're doing stuff that's bivocational, you really need to live out that kind of, whether you, you want to call it the fivefold gifts or that kind of team-based polycentric approach to yeah. mission. That it's, the only way, it's the only way you can do it. You can't leave at one person to pastor a community of, you know, 20, 30 people and yeah. run a full-time job. So it's it's got to be a team based approach and a team focused effort. Mm. Yeah. And so what are the what are the things that you've seen that are working as a team based approach? Um, what are the values that need to be be set in a place where we could have that instead of a solo leader? Yeah, lots of things. I think there's lots of things to make it work um, in that sort of space. Gosh. Um, one of the, the big concepts I'm, I'm big on at the moment, um, yeah, is, is psychological safety, which is, a, is mm. it's kind of this old teams idea. But actually, it's really important when you have these leadership teams that they feel like they can say, I'm not doing okay. Can someone mm. else pick up some of the load? Or mm-hmm. I'm struggling my relationship with Jesus at the moment. Could some others come around me and take, take the load of running the missional community, but come around me. And I feel like, the teams that we've seen most flourish are the teams where it's okay to be not okay mm. and still be in and around the leadership team. Yeah. Um, I think years ago there was this old kind of idea where if, if someone's struggling, you kind of step them down from leadership and push them to the side to get counselling and, and move them away. Yeah. But one, one of the things that we've seen is what, what does it look like to embrace mm. people and leaders in all seasons of their life, you know, when, yeah. when their life is in tatters as well as when it, it's doing well. And the credibility that that gains you when you hold with someone who's struggling mm. and the willingness and the buy-in and the trust that that develops in those leadership teams, mm-hmm. um, I think it's just been, that's been really priceless and that's really glued some of mm. our teams together really for quite a long time. Hmm. You know, how do you build that psychological safety within teams? Uh, because it doesn't happen right away. No, no. And I think it's bigger than building trust. So if you look at kind of Patrick Lencioni's work, he's like, you know, the first mm-hmm. thing that right. teams is, is building trust. But I think it's beyond that. It's both um, your emotional intelligence, so your awareness of where people are at hmm. and, and the way you respond to that. So if you see that people are struggling and you choose not to engage with that, then you're actually degrading your, your psychological safety. Um, but I think it's also the way we respond to other people's thoughts and ideas. And I think this is really important if you're going to mm. cultivate a network of microchurches as much as if you're just leading a microchurch team. Yeah. Like if you're cultivating a network and somebody says, hey, what if we, you know, had an idea over here, let's go shoot at this one. And you you knock it down or you say, <laughs> yeah, no, nah, I don't, don't think that's where God's at. Um, I think you degrade that safety and, and then you don't have people come to you with those crazy mm. ideas, which... Yeah. You know, my experience is a lot of the time they are crazy God ideas and, and go for it, you know, run with them. Um, so I think that that's been one of the things I've been really reflecting on. Mm. And it, it comes out of that emotional intelligence space. It yeah. comes out of 
um, our cultural awareness too, seeing the differences in our team as things to leverage and advantages hmm. rather than things that divide us or, um, you know, we need to minimise this person because they're too, you know, rambunctious or loud or whatever, yeah. saying actually how do we use that in our team? That This is what God's placed. These are the gifts he's given us. Hmm. Why has he given us these? Because I work on the assumption that God's placed those people there because he wants to use them in, in different ways. So how, how are we using what God has given us? Mm. Uh, I think that's, that's so good as you're, especially when you're working with a network of, of micro churches uh, to be able to do that and to empower people to actually run with some, some God ideas um, and to affirm whether they are God ideas or not, just to, <laughs> and to let them, let them go and run wild. You know, we need some innovation, uh, we need risk taking, especially uh, in this micro church yeah. setting. You know, as people are starting to engage uh, the small, um, and they're saying, "Okay, we're we're making an impact. We're making a difference." Um, a lot of it is it is it hard for people to get to a place of uh, participatory. Um, worship or participatory uh, community that we're all playing a part uh, in what we're doing um, in you know in the small in the small area um, it needs to be participatory I mean and yeah. some people just uh, in my in my uh, case some people aren't ready for participation Um and they've they've been inoculated to a non-participatory approach to uh, to church. Um, even yeah. people that are unchurched, they've been they go, oh, what is this? Mm. Where you know we engage, we have a network of of, of micro churches. We gather once a month as a as a whole network uh, together. But we are in the homes uh, yeah. and the communities the rest of the time. Um, and even as I'm bringing in new people that don't yet know Jesus, haven't ever been churched, they're shocked at how participatory we are. Um, how do mm -hmm. we get to a place where people are uh, excited about uh, engaging in this participation in the body of Christ, um, and they're not just there to receive something uh, for their own benefit? Yeah, it's it's a good question because we we see some some different patterns around this. So we often see if you're engaging non-believers, I mean one of our one of our principles of how we like to gather is is making it a welcoming space so that everybody comes in and is engaged, yeah. but not basically making it so that they in those first few times that they visit they don't actually have to, they're not forced right. to really really do anything and holding that sort of kind of social space dynamics in that space. But we, we found this pattern with Christians particularly who are moving into this model mm -hmm. that they there's this reaction to begin with. They love the participatory nature. They, they dive right in. And then after maybe three months, six months, they're like, yeah, this is hard work. I actually have to do and prepare and organise. And, and it's almost like they want to revert backwards and they want to go back to consumer yeah. church. And I've seen this swing over and over and mm. over again. And I think there's a couple of things that 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 we've uh, a couple of things that we've learned. One is these communities have to be low weight, mm. and the problem when Christians who have been in big churches start to try and run micro churches is they try and run them with a, a fair degree of organisation and planning and program, yeah. and it becomes too heavy. Mm. It actually it actually becomes burdensome rather than joyful. Yeah, um, and so they feel like they're basically running a larger scale of church in their home and, yeah. and exhausting themselves. So trying to make sure that the gatherings that mm. we keep, we do, you know, all for priesthood of all believers, all for everyone participating, but in a lightweight way, what does it look like that people could actually just come be engaged in that yeah. space without um, causing too much preparation? And also how do you create the space so that people are free to participate at whatever level they're at. Right. And, and some of that, I think, echoes back again to that psychological safety. Is it okay in yeah. this space to say, I don't know where I'm at. I'm actually not mm. sure about yeah. faith. And that, that actually is something the leader really has to work hard to shape in those spaces. Because if you get mm. a strong Christian in the room who, you know, 
one of your friends comes and makes a question and and we had this, you know, just a couple of weeks ago at our microchurch and a strong Christian comes in and says, well, this is why you should believe and just kind of preaches at them for 10 minutes. You're like, wow, you've just destroyed the psychological safety of our group. Thank you very much. Um, How do you actually Hmm. help Christians to understand that this space is is a space of of open discussion, of conversation, Hmm. of of engagement together? Yeah, yeah, that's that's been one of the things that we've really worked on and to be Mm. honest part of the way that we've got through this has been to really focus on bringing in non-believers and not really trying to like when christians say hey we want to come join your micro church i'm like hey how about i help you try and start one because (laughs) when you get micro churches that are full of too many churched christians yeah it it changes the culture and and there's there's a whole lot of unlearning that needs to happen yeah about to relearn how you create those safe, engaging spaces mm. where everybody gets to, you know, engage with Jesus wherever they're at. Mm. Are, do you uh, do you give out? Do you have any good uh, tips, resources to create those safe spaces um, and to to help leaders of microchurches uh, create them? What sort of learning needs to happen to be able to do that and to provide those safe spaces? Yeah, so one of the, the trainings that I've done sounds a bit ridiculous, but I always come back to this one. I teach people how to have a conversation. <laughs> yes, because I actually so think important. in our world, we've lost <laughs> the art of how to have a conversation. How do you ask questions yeah. of another person rather than make statements about where you're at? How do you, yeah. you know, be genuinely mm. curious? How do you do, you know, active listening and deep listening to not just what they're saying, but yeah. what's going on behind? Um to be honest, that's probably the biggest key that we've found is when we've taught people how to have conversations, how to be active mm. listeners. And I mean, like, yeah. don't just listen to what they're saying, but listen to what they're saying, look at their body language, kind of learn to read the room yeah. and, and kind of increase that emotional intelligence space. Mm. Then when you speak, you'll be far more sensitive to yeah. where they're at, where their needs are. Um where we, where we see those spaces not functioning is where we see people behaving in ways that are either they've got an agenda to push um, yeah. or they just, they're not, they're not actually, they're not listening. They're not engaging in that. Mm. And then, then the other thing we've taught people is how do you ask a good question? <laughs> you know, listen deeply and then learn to ask good questions, mm. like really deep questions, thoughtful questions. Um, one of the things that we've, one of the little practices we've had a, as a missional community is, you know, always, you know, like lots of people, we offer to pray for people when they tell us about something that's going wrong when yeah. we're walking the streets or community. I had a, a lady, we've got a street library out the front of our house I was talking to and um, she was telling me about something that was that was going wrong in a, a friend's life and, you know, I offered to pray for her as lots of Christians do. But the one thing that we've asked that we've kind of pre- helped some of our community now to, to learn to do is say, well, rather than just saying, hey, I'll pray for you, which we say first, I say, is it okay if we pray for you? And that's, you know, yeah, yeah, fine. I say, well, what would be your ideal outcome? Like what, what if, if God could do anything in this situation, what would you want them to, what would you want God to do? Hmm. And it is such a good question because then yeah. people go, oh, well, I'd love it if he, you know, totally wiped the cancer away hmm. or repaired their marriage or, I said, well, that's, you know, and then our response, what trained people say is, okay, well, that is exactly what I'm going to be praying for. Yeah. And it's one little question that you add on to something that we say as Christians all the time mm. that totally changes the depth and level of connection with people. Yeah. And helping people realize where are those spaces where you can ask just that, that one more question or that one well-worded question yeah. that really helps people feel loved, cared for, and that, that God is actually engaging in them and in their life. Mm. That's beautiful. You're able to do that in a space and with people that you just met as well. That it can, yeah. doesn't have to be in. I do that you with know. all sorts of random people. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's it a, an art. So, yeah. 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 And, you know, it's part of that. Uh, we, we, we pick on Mike's book, you know, how do we live lives that are curious, that actually help people to ask questions of us? Yeah. Um, and, so what, and what does that learning look Learning to ask like? good questions. It's learning to ask a good question. We always think that we have to have the answer. We need to be the, the you know, the Bible answer person. Um, yeah. But really, you know, if we follow the model of Jesus, um, even if he yeah. was asked 
direct questions. He often would ask a question back uh, or yeah. tell a story, do something, and he rarely gave a direct answer back. Um, yeah. So how how do we get to a place where we can ask really good questions um, and good questions that see the person uh, that mm. we're talking to? Um, and that's, that is a gift um, and an art, and it takes a lot of practice. Um, and yeah. so I think that a lot of times when we're entering into this, we're going to, we're going to suck at it at the beginning. We're not going to be good at asking questions. We're not going to be gonna good. feel really awkward. It's going to feel awkward. And how do you yeah. get to a place? There's so many people out there that don't want to embrace the awkward. They don't want to embrace uh, the difficult. They want to be comfortable uh, and be in our comfortable spaces. And you're, you're in a place that you're, you know, you have a, a micro church network where it is basically a bunch of people that, that have decided I want to be uncomfortable um, and engage the community around me and meet the needs of the community around me in a space where it's inconveniencing to, to me. Um, mm. how, how can we help people take a step towards the uncomfortable um, and embrace the awkward so that we can grow and we could actually see transformational change in our communities. Yeah, I would love to say that everyone in our network was happy with being uncomfortable and putting <laughs> themselves out in inconvenience, but we're working on it. Um, I, I think you start where you are comfortable doing something that's uncomfortable. Hmm. So if you've got a friend, like a good friend, you start by actually, you know, even even within like a Christian small group, yeah. have a dinner one week and sit across the table from each other, pairs, and practice the art of actually asking a good question that tries to pull out and elicit a story from someone else. Yeah. And and take it in, like a dorky as it sounds, take it in turns of learning to ask questions and then actually at the end going, stop, what were some of the best questions you heard? Like the, mm. the way we came up with that question for people um, after they praised that somebody yeah. just came up with it one day. And then shared it back to others and said, hey, I said this and it had a great response. Mm. And we were like, ah, cool. Okay, let's all try that. Mm. Um, so I think it's it's making spaces for people to try and fail and, ha- and to be honest, to have fun with it. Let's, let's not make <laughs> it into some boring training program about how to ask questions and how to listen. You know, do it, do it in a fun way. Do it over food. Do it. You can even do it over silly things like, um, you know, have a conversation with somebody about which is the best football team. Yeah. And try and actually have a conversation where you put aside your own views and you you listen and engage um, and see if you can sway one another in, in your in your listening, like if you see mm. if they can sway you and um, just, you know, little silly things like that that mm. are comfortable but help yeah. people practice the, the skill because it's like a muscle, right? Yeah. You know, you want to grow strong, you go to the gym every day and you keep practicing. So where are those spaces that you can practice actually mm. learning to ask questions or learning to listen um, to others? Mm. Um, some of the other things that I've seen work well is kids have taken, um, kids, <laughs> some of our team, mostly <laughs> young adults, people that I've been involved in um, kind of micro-church missional communities with. Well, that, that brings me like, a, a good, good point is that uh, we actually need – mothers and fathers in the Lord. Yeah. And it's okay to say kids because if we're actually <laughs> being a mother in the Lord, it's it's really it's something that's yeah. missing. And there's very few yeah. of that. And so it's okay. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. But we actually have most of our <laughs> communities we would have spiritual parents. Mm-hmm. And that actually came out of our work with the, the youth communities is that when we had these youth communities, we would appoint, you know, young adults would lead it along with the team of youth. Yeah. But we'd import, you know, there'd be a, a family that basically took them on and became the spiritual parents of that community. Mm. And we just found so much value in that that we, we <laughs> kind of rolled out that across um, across all the ages. But, yeah, I think, um, yeah, and, and that goes into all sorts of other areas around kind of the value of the cross-generational space, I think, yeah. in these in these spaces, but I, yeah, I've <laughs> taken on some of our, our, our young adults who are not children as children. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. 
As you're you're looking at what are some of the the stories of uh, some community transformation as you're starting to engage the community, you're saying, okay, what is God up to in the space? Where are the needs of my community? Uh, how do we start something? What are some community transformation that's happening? Yeah, so one of the one of the very early communities that we launched, um, probably 2013, 2014 now. Um, one of the ones that really stands out to me because of, I think, just the specific need that we encountered was we were, we're in a, an area where there's an increasing number of mainland uh, Chinese immigrants. Yeah. Um, so it would be a no-brainer to say, yep, <clears throat> let's do a microchurch for Mandarin speakers, right? No-brainer. <laughs> but we were like, well, that's like 80% of our population. So how do we actually narrow down what God's doing in that space? And we, you know, went on a couple of prayer walks and ended up meeting as we walked around the community kind of during the day with this couple who was interested, um, we ended up meeting these families or they were either mothers or grandmothers with toddlers mm. at home. Mm-hmm. And what we found was happening was as they'd immigrate, dads primarily would go off to work. They'd have mm-hmm. great English skills. Primary age, secondary age kids would go to school. They'd have great English skills. But you'd end up with these um, parents and their children very isolated at home a little bit too scared to go out to the shops even to purchase groceries on their own because they just, despite the fact that most of the time their English was fantastic, hmm. the confidence in their English was was not great. Hmm. Um, and so one of the things we did was as we kind of sensed what God was doing in this community, we sensed there was, you know, there's lots of ESL programs that exist everywhere, yeah. but this particular need was for parents and grandparents with toddlers to just grow some confidence around their language. And so we started like a, a playgroup slash language cafe so yeah. that the toddlers could come and have somewhere to, to engage, but the parents could just, no, no classes, just have conversational <laughs> English so that they could actually, and it was run by Mandarin speakers. So, you know, they'd do a lot of it in Mandarin and then they'd say, okay, now we have to speak English. We're trying to help you. And, <laughs> um, and that became probably one of the most fruitful communities that we've seen where we sell, <laughs> you know, Incredible numbers um, come to faith through that community. Our biggest problem was we didn't have a, a Mandarin service or somewhere that yeah. they could engage with kind of on a larger scale. Uh, we do now, um, mm. but we actually ended up seeing a lot of people come to faith and join lots of other Mandarin-speaking <laughs> congregations around us, which we were very happy and yeah. open to do. Um, but, yeah, that was that was one where you just thought there was a real, <laughs> there was a real gap in yep. what was going on around us. And God really pointed that out to us and said, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't need a big program. It doesn't need anything fancy. It just needs a group of people who want to gather with mums and their toddlers and mm-hmm. a few toys and make a space for them to grow in confidence with their language. Mm-hmm. And, and they did. And that, uh, I mean, I know of um, a lady from that community now who runs a playgroup in her home. Um, mm-hmm. And she's just still still doing that work completely kind of, alongside or separate to the the guys who used to lead it, but just really convinced of the need to help this particular community. And it's been a really, um, Mm. yeah, a a really positive way to engage in that tiny little gap. And that's what we've often found. We find that, you know, we're not taking on as a network the big issues of, you know, um, know, I don't know, sexual exploitation or, you know, we're taking the little issues in community. Like another one was we're in a highly educated area where, you know, everybody's on about high academic results. People come to our area yeah. from overseas for the high schools. It's that it's that sort of good. But yeah. we found that there was this whole group of young adults who were artistic and creative, who didn't yeah. necessarily achieve academically, who felt like second-class citizens. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm I'm a doctoral student, so I <laughs> I wasn't part of that group. I didn't even know that group existed <laughs> until one of our young adults came up to me and said. I have a heart for this particular group of people. And I said, what people? Mm. You know, young adults who don't don't achieve. I'm like, the any young adults not achieving England Waverly? Aren't they all like high achievers? <laughs> she was like, no, there's this, there's this sub-community of people um, who are incredible artists who mm. need to understand that the gifts and the abilities that they've given them, God's given them to, to bring beauty and joy and life in our world. Yeah. And so she did. She launched this great community for mm. um for these artists and others that I think would have been very undervalued and certainly mm. unseen in our community mm. um, and really brought what they did to life. So, mm. yeah, so we, we find the little nooks and crannies rather than the big issues that the organisations are working towards. 
Yeah. So, yeah. I love the little nooks and crannies. And you can see, you know, just how how the little things and the small things is, and just a few people can go and and transform something uh, yeah. big, you know, as you're, you're seeing, you know, even those play groups are starting to multiply out um, and you're going to have that impact either f- even further down the line that you're not going to actually know uh, what's going on because it's, mm. it keeps on multiplying out. Uh, because people are affected by it and they're, yeah. they're saying, oh, this is valuable. I want to participate yeah. in it. Um, and there's, yeah. it's those small groups of people that could actually go out and, and change communities and change the world. Mm. Um, have you seen yeah. evidence of, of that um, throughout, throughout history? Um, have we seen some of these small groups starting to to change the world? What does that look like? Have we seen it before, or is this something that's that's new and happening now? Yeah, no. Look, I think there's a, a there's something about it that's being renewed for our time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's new. I think there's history will tell you that small groups of people have been what brought around most of the kind of. Um, revolutions even politically let alone yeah. christian kind of reformations over time so i mean there's lots of really known stories about that with john wesley and his little groups and bands mm-hmm. and societies and the moravians and, and their work around mission like what they did really changed the world in a yeah. couple of countries quite significantly but it was it was small groups and and little little things popping up i remember howard snyder writes a great book called the radical wesley that really unpacks that idea mm that what Wesley did wasn't one revival that kind of swept the country under this great preacher like a Billy Graham style. Mm-hmm. It was actually a whole whole lot of pockets of little revivals and smaller mm. communities that actually fanned the flame of revival and kept it burning across the country. Mm. Um, so there are those sorts of ones, but there's a lot of really unknown ones as well. Like I love talking about, I mean, if you're, I don't know if God Squad's a thing in, in the US, but the motorcycle gang that... Um, mm is a Christian motorcycle gang that, um, you know, works with out, outlaws and, and bikies and things like that. Mm. We started in Australia years ago as just a bunch of people who wanted to reach um, those the church would never reach. And so they did. And now it's a, a big mm. organization reaching bikies. I mean, years ago, there's the story wow. of um, things like Mother's Union and Girls Friendly Society, all of those big organizations that now, we'd now see as like, um, you know, not-for-profit institutions. Yeah, both of those started as small groups of people who saw a need in the community. Mothers' mm-hmm. Union saw this need for for mothers and families to be supported in kind of post-industrial mm-hmm. um, England. And Girls Friendly Society saw these young women who are being, you know, 12, 14 year fourteen-year-old girls being sent into the city to work and falling as prey to mm-hmm. lots of dodgy people in the city. And they're like, "Nah, that's not good enough." We're going to build communities around these women. We're going to mentor them. We're going to support them and encourage them in the name of Jesus. Yeah. And that's how these organizations grew. And I probably don't know half of them, um, <laughs> but there's hundreds of them throughout history where people mm. just see a need. Yeah. They respond kind of out of that, you know, you know, just general gospel love for these people. They want to see that the fullness mm. and the restoration of the kingdom that God intends for these people but they mm. respond in small ways. And then, I don't know, God tends to blow up small things sometimes and make them very large. <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> and it's a, and it's okay to actually, you know, see and be engaged in the small. And the problem, I think, for some people is they want to see, we want to see the effectiveness. We want to see the fruit uh, of our labors when we, when we go after uh, the small, we want to see that that large effect. And we mm. oftentimes, a lot of times, we don't get to see it. Um, and it's yeah. kind of frustrating. Um, but there is something that's happening um, that is a lot larger. Um, when you engage the small and when you're actually in it um, mm. and faithful to what God has called you to, um, big things are happening. And they're... Yeah there is movement that is happening uh, mm. on the edges of it. You know, my wife uh, earlier this year went to South Asia, trained a bunch of Muslim backgrounds, uh, believers, 
and a lot of those uh, believers start. It started with a eight year old girl that saw a need in a community. Um, she met an eleven year old that was going to go mm. out and get married, um, and asked her why she's getting married and not going to school and. Basically, her parents didn't have enough money. She asked how much money was it? It was like eight U.S. dollars a month or something. And she goes, I have, you know, my allowance is is, uh, more than that. I have that money. Can I pay for you Hmm. to go to school? So she paid to go for this girl to go to school. So she didn't have to get married at 11 years old. Um, And she went back home and she started to raise money for other girls to go to school mm. and not to, to be married. And now there's so, a lot of people have come to faith um, and started yes. to say yes to Jesus. And now there's a mm. lot of work with those families telling Jesus stories in homes. Um, yes. And it it is growing from one little girl. This is, I love the story mm. because it's just an eight-year-old little girl who said, there's this need. I can meet the need for one and then go back and tell people about the need and say, we mm. can do it for more. And it's yep. started just to grow and multiply out because yeah, hey, w- being attentive to what God is doing in that area and what need there is in the, in the space. Yeah. yeah. And I think if every Christian focused on doing exactly that, we'd change the world. Mm-hmm. We often think we need these big organizations and, you know, big plans. But if, if actually every Christian just focused on what needs are in front of them and filling them in the name of Jesus, um, <laughs> like that would be world changing. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it's it. Not How do we do that? Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's just do it. Let's all just engage. Let's do it. Let's see what is the need in front of you. Ask really mm. good questions to pull that out um, yep. and then figure out how to meet that need. Um we could do that, and we could do that with uh, small groups of people. Um, yeah. Brie, I have a couple of questions uh, here yeah, at the go. end. Number one, uh, if you could go back to your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give? <laughs> oh, relax. <laughs> <laughs> Take life easy. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I was I was a very um, – I, I had a lot of dreams and things I wanted to pursue, and – I was I was quite um, passionate about those things, but I think life has taught me, and Jesus has taught me, that He is at work in this world, and mm. and it's yeah, don't like that. We don't need to stress and drive and and push to actually do things. Like at twenty one, I was working in a church already as a youth pastor, and I was like, I was pushing to achieve, you know, big yeah. church growth in a large church that you know wanted to see hundreds of kids at their youth ministry. And you were so driven by that kind of need to grow this thing big, realize, but mm. but yeah, I'd just say just just hang with Jesus, do what Jesus yeah. wants to do, and mm. enjoy enjoy life. Like actually, I think Christians forget that Jesus actually he he created us to actually live a full and, and joyful life. Like this, yeah. if it's killing us, then maybe it's not what he's asked us. Like I'm not saying it's not wow. life's not without suffering or difficulty. Yep. I definitely think that there are times that that's exactly what God calls us to. Um, but there is joy in that if, yeah. if you're doing that, you know, in the yeah. right spaces and empowered by him. So, yeah, I, I think I'd mm. tell myself to <laughs> just chill out and <laughs> relax with Jesus a bit. It's <laughs> uh, so good. You know, one, one of my favorite stories is that uh, redemption of, of Peter um, you know, at the very end when Jesus, yeah. you know, in his resurrected body yeah. and he's about ready to go back to the father. One of the last things he does is he has a barbecue on the beach with his friends. Um, and you know, th- that's what Jesus yeah. was about. He's like, he could yeah. do anything as some of his last acts on earth. And one, of, he just wanted to have a barbecue on the beach with his friends. That's and, so good. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. I, I love just, it. Yeah, it's uh, and it gives me an opportunity to go to the beach, have a barbecue, get, uh, <laughs> grill some good fish, and then you know have some bread. Sounds like an ideal day to me. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Anything you've been reading or watching lately you could recommend? Oh gosh, what have I been reading lately that I recommend? Lots. <laughs> um, I mean, Susan Beaumont's "How to Lead When You Don't Know Where You're Going." I actually think is a mm. really valuable book for churches today. It's probably the thing I'm recommending the most to mm-hmm. those in current church leadership, particularly those in traditional form leadership who are mm-hmm. finding, 
you know, leaving a liminal space is a bit uh, discouraging or um, mm. uncomfortable. I just think she does a really great job of kind of um, joining together the, the, the kind of organisational leadership and the spiritual leadership in that mm. space. That's, mm. that's probably one that's been uh, a good joy to me at the moment. Um, gosh, other ones are probably, I'm a doctoral student, so the other ones might be <laughs> more academic. Um, but Stroop's Transcending Mission has been one that I've been enjoying. <laughs> if, you're, if you're an academic-natured person and you want to talk about the whole missional church movement and the word missional rubs you up the wrong way, then Stroop is a great guy. <laughs> Have a read at his thoughts on that. Mm, that's great. Uh, Bria, this was a, a great conversation. It was fantastic to get us to think uh, how small groups of people could go and, and change the world as and faithfulness to Jesus and the small things and little things. Um, mm. I love the conversation and thoughts around asking really good questions um, and looking to see what are the needs of the community around us um, and where God is at work in the community so that we could actually go out and meet those needs. So it was a fantastic conversation. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You know, if anybody wants to connect with you, uh, where can they find you? Uh, I do have a website, breemills.com.au, but you can just find me on um, socials, uh, breemills on Facebook or on uh, Instagram mostly. Yeah. Perfect. Sounds good. Well, Bree, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks, mate. It's mm -hmm. good. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.